You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. One of the things that Bree and I get to do quite a bit, especially as, especially right now, is uh, go through premarital counseling with um, with new couples. That have recently engaged, been engaged, and uh, and it's a real joy and a delight to uh, to spend that time with these couples. I have a, a process that I walk them through in preparation for the wedding, and uh, just getting them ready and and teaching them uh, what it means to understand the the covenant they are making, and then what it looks like to keep covenant, uh, to keep covenant with um, with each other before God. And uh, sometimes I have people that request that, and and maybe they're. They're living together, or maybe they're not. Um, one of them's not a Christian, or something like that. And uh, and I have a, a form that I, I that I have them agree to. Um, and one of the things is out of respect for the covenant that you're intending to make, uh, I, I want you to not be living together, not be having sexual intimacy with the, with each other, out of respect for this covenant, because that that is part of the covenant keeping, and that's not something that should be happening outside of the covenant. And often that gets me in trouble. That's a pretty controversial stand these days, but if I'm going to be participating in the wedding, if I'm going to be the one that's signing my name to the marriage license, I want to have confidence before God that this covenant is, is, uh, is legitimate and that this covenant will be kept. And so I'm pretty restrictive on the weddings that I'll do, but I'm, I feel very confident. In fact, all of the weddings that I've done, they're still married, they're keeping covenant. And so it's fewer, but it's intense, it's discipling. And, uh, and I think the fruit bears itself out. But yeah, that's one of the more controversial things that uh, in our culture that is, um, is a bit controversial, that uh, the covenant-keeping one-fleshness that Genesis 2 talks about, therefore a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, and becomes one flesh, that there's an order to that, that there should be a leaving and cleaving before the one-flesh life, before covenant-keeping, covenant-making before covenant-keeping. And, uh, and that covenant pattern is found throughout the Bible, this idea of initiating into a covenant before God with other people, and then also that there being a covenant renewal, a, a community. And so we call marriage that whole covenant making, covenant keeping lifestyle, uh, but that covenant pattern can be found in other places as well. And so that's what I want to do today is just talk about the pattern of covenant keeping and how that relates to the Lord's Supper and the local church. One of the more controversial things that I also advocate for that I think the Bible teaches in addition to what, uh, how the marriage covenant should be organized is how the local church should be organized, that this covenant, this covenant pattern also extends uh, in the local church. So for, for me and for us, and you probably noticed this on the handout, the Lord's Supper, baptism is the covenant, that's the covenant-making ceremony whereby one is brought and attached to the many before God brought into the church, and then the covenant renewal, the covenant keeping is the Lord's Supper within that covenant community. So the Lord's Supper expresses and renews the union that was expressed in baptism. So the conviction then, if we're following the covenant pattern, is that communion should only happen within the context of the local church, only within the context of the local church covenant membership, which reflects the biblical pattern of covenant covenant. And that remains pretty controversial today. In fact, that's probably pretty controversial among some of you right now as you think this through. But let me make the case for you. 
And if we went more than 100 years into the past, this would be non-controversial at all. You could go around the world. You could go down through church history. This is center-cut Christianity. But let me make the case for you. As we talk about Lord's Supper today and baptism next week as signs and symbols of covenant-keeping, the covenant that God has given given to us, I hope that you'll have an open mind here. And so if you look at that handout in there, you'll see that we outlined together, our elders studied this together and came to an explanation. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll look at that a little bit. I won't read that right now, but you can see our statement of faith there. You can read where our position is on uh, the Lord's Supper. This has been the case from the beginning. We've been upfront about this. Uh, But what does the Lord's Supper do? The Lord's Supper institutes a new covenant arrangement that fulfills all previous covenants. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's saving sacrifice. The Lord's Supper proclaims the essentials of the gospel and invites all to trust in the finished work of Christ and enjoy its benefits by faith. The Lord's Supper separates those who live in, in repentant trust from those who do not. So it's a separation event. The Lord's Supper also disciplines God's people by way of regular reminder to confess personal sin and even through exclusion from the table corporately for those who choose their sin over Christ. The Lord's Supper unites the local church practically in time and place, as well as with all true believers spiritually in all times and all places. The Lord's Supper nourishes our souls in the gospel together, and the Lord's Supper anticipates the Lord's return and His glorious wedding feast that awaits all who love His appearing. So normally, ordinarily, we will lead the Lord's Supper. Your elders will lead you as an aspect of their shepherding. Others may occasionally, as need arises, who may participate, those who are baptized believers who belong to a church and are, are not under the final stage of active church discipline, haven't been removed from the table or been excommunicated. And so we do that as part of the gatherings of the local church because it is part of covenant keeping. It actually makes a covenant, as 1 Corinthians 10 is going to tell us. We affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant organization in the world. Next to the Catholics, it's the largest Christian organization in the world. And here is the statement of faith that the Baptist Faith and Message says. So this is Southern Baptists, 48,000 churches, 14 million members, largest missions force on the world. You can't get these guys to agree on anything. But here's what their statement of faith is. It says, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin... Burial of the old life and resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So there's this recognition of a pattern, a pattern of covenant keeping, of covenant affirming, of covenant reception when we come to the Lord's table. So we're looking at feasting with Christ together. And what I want to do is I want to go to Jesus first and foremost. Let's look at Luke chapter 22. This will bounce us back to the Passover in the Old Testament. So we'll look at that passage in a little bit. Then we'll go to the apostles and then we'll go to Paul in 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to do something that's very hard for me which is go to a bunch of passages and try not to explain everything in them, all right? But I want you to see a pattern here, 
And then I want us to think about what pattern our church should have in light of the pattern of Scripture. Okay? So feasting with Christ. I want you to notice something about the covenant sign here. The covenant sign is three things. It's a grateful remembering of God's saving work in the past. So it's celebrating what God has done on behalf of sinners. It's a gift. It's a gift that we receive, and we're remembering God's saving work. It's also, at the same time, a nourishing anticipation. It sustains us while we wait for the fulfillment, the completing work in the future. That's what the Passover represented, was this remembering and this anticipation. It also, the Lord's Supper, is a remembering what Christ has done, that we've been brought to the table by His merits, and this anticipating of the new of the, um, of the heavenly feast that we will be a part of, this nourishing anticipation. And it also does another thing in time and space, is that it unites a body of believers together and affirms them in their faith. It's a mutual affirming, it's a mutual uniting under God. And at the same time, whenever you unite and, uh, unite and affirm something, you're also separating and denying others. So it is a separating place. It separates God's people in time and place, affirming and uniting, and also um, denying and not affirming in other ways. So just watch for those three things as we look at these passages. Look at Luke 22. Jesus is about to go to the crucifixion. He's about to go to his death. It's Passover feast, and he gathers his disciples together, and they're going to celebrate a Passover together. Now, what's interesting is typically Passover was celebrated with your family, but Jesus pulls them out of their families, and now he is the head of this new family, So there's something already odd at the very beginning here as Jesus pulls these men, these apostles, together to celebrate the Lord's Supper with him and establish this new family that supersedes. The old family isn't gone away. It's still important, but there's a new family of faith. You celebrate the Passover as part of your family. Now you're going to celebrate this covenant in a new family, in a new household. Luke 22, 14 through 15. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This would have totally blown their minds. He's totally reinterpreting the Passover. He's keeping a pattern in line here that we'll see in a second, but he's changing the meaning of the pattern. He's changing it, and it's now about him. No longer is it going to be the blood of lambs that covers your sins, but now one lamb has come, and he will save you from your sins. It will be a bigger, better deliverance from sin, not from the Egyptians. And likewise, The cup after he was eaten said, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he's pulling all of those covenant patterns forward and saying, this still falls within the covenant pattern, but it's a new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31 and 32. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And he dismisses Judas. And so here's what we see. We see right here Jesus, he's bringing them out of their families into a new family. He's reinterpreting the meal, new lamb, new family, completion of these symbols. But I want you to continue some of these symbols as a remembrance of me. 
And so we see that the Lord's Supper is meant to be a grateful remembering of God's saving work in Christ. It's a grateful remembering of God's saving work in Christ in the past. It is also a nourishing anticipation of God's completing work in the future because he says, I won't drink of this cup until I've finished my work. And even 1 Corinthians 11 says that you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So there's an, a nourishing anticipation. And it unites and affirms 11 of them, and he dismisses Judas. He's put up with Judas this whole time, but it's now at the table where the discipline of Judas, the separation of Judas happens at the table. Keep that in mind, because that's going to come back around. Jesus removes G Judas from the table. So this is both a place of union and separation, a place of affirmation and rejection, a place of inclusion and exclusion to the glory of God. And he uses the word covenant here. This is a new covenant that Jesus himself is purchasing with his blood. So he mentioned Passover. They're celebrating Passover. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12 and see if we don't see a pattern here. Because Jesus is clearly pulling on a pattern. Let's see where that pattern comes from. Exodus chapter 12 is where uh, God's people are in bondage. They're in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. God has raised up a deliverer, Moses, and these ten plagues have come to break the will of the Egyptians and deliver God's people. The very last plague is the worst of all. God is going to send the angel of death to go and kill the firstborn in every household, without exception, everybody. And we read about that just a few minutes ago. But God made a provision. There's a way to escape the wrath and justice of God. And that is, if you will take a lamb and kill it, put its blood on the doorpost, and then you hide behind that blood-soaked door, you consume that lamb together with all those who will trust in him, who will come into this household and trust with you, and the angel of death will pass over you. There has to be a death in every home. It's either going to be a firstborn son, which would be me for all the firstborns, grateful, there was a provision. There was either going to be a dead lamb or there's going to be a dead son. And so if there's not going to be a dead son, then there has to be a substitute. And the angel of death, the justice of God, passes over because an atonement had been made. Now, you had to be within the household with other people. You had to, by faith, receive this provision of God. It wasn't just automatic. You couldn't just put it on your door and then go out somewhere else. You had to be in community. You had to be in with the people. You had to be behind the door. You had to partake of this meal together to participate in this in this um, salvation. Then, immediately after the event happens, God creates a, a rite, a, a recurring meal that they're to celebrate together. Look at Exodus chapter 12, and here's what he says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is just right after the event happened, this is the statute of the Passover. So I want you to celebrate this meal again and again to remember this saving work from the Egyptians. And listen to what he says. It's pretty strong right here. This is the statute of the Pas Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. So the Passover meal is a place of separation between God's people and not God's people. But every slave that is brought, bought by money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. He's got to take the initiating sign of being in the covenant of circumcision. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. So you, just don't, you don't just do this out anywhere. It has to be in the house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. This is only to be celebrated within the community, the household. And you shall not break any of its bones. That's going to point to Jesus. Verse 47. All the congregation, which is the Old Testament word for church, called out assembly. 
all the assembly, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This is required of everybody. Everybody has to find a home to celebrate this Passover in. Just required of everybody to find, not just to celebrate it as part of the larger Israel, you have to be and partake of it as part of a household with real living, breathing people who have received you, who have checked your circumcision, as awkward as that might be. You have to bear the initiating sign and be received by the community to be able to participate in this meal. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would like to keep the Passover with you, so someone comes into you, they happen to be there, let all the males be circumcised, which is an odd thing to ask your guests, and then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns for you. So you see, as this Passover is going to roll forward and God's covenant people remember, God's pretty clear that he wants this to communicate something. It's a grateful remembering of God's saving work in the past, bringing them out of Egypt. It's a nourishing anticipation of God's completing work that's going to come as he fulfills the promises to them ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And it unites and affirms in real time a real people. It also excludes certain people, though they can come in if they'll receive the signs and join the household, right? That's what it says. That's the pattern. So there's the pattern of receiving the word, being circumcised, being added to the household, and then partaking. The pattern follows almost exactly in the New Testament. Receive the word, be baptized, get added to the church, partake in communion. Pattern is exactly the same. Jesus models it. It's from the Old Testament. It carries through into the New Testament. This place of union and separation, affirmation and rejection, inclusion and exclusion, all happening at the table. Well, maybe you're thinking I'm making this up. Let's go to the apostles in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He resurrects. He does his work. He resurrects. He ascends into heaven. He says, go and make disciples. You're carrying this mission forward. This new covenant is now yours. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, go for it. Go and tell the whole world. Spread this. Spread this new covenant message and this new covenant pattern. Spread it everywhere. And so then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down. People begin to speak in tongues. People respond to that message of the gospel that Peter preaches. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole pile of Christians And what do the apostles understand Jesus to be teaching? When they organize this very first church, they're just 40 days or so, 50 days removed from when they were with Jesus in the upper room. What do they understand the new covenant to be? This is where the moment of truth is. And so now, this is it. The apostles are now, the new covenant has now come. What do they do? What do they understand the Old Testament and Jesus to teach them about how to carry the new covenant forward? Look at what they do. Those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day to what? This new household of faith called the church, about 3,000 souls. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Ah, the pattern holds. Receive the word, then receive the initiating sign. It used to be circumcision in the Old Testament. Now it's baptism. Be added to a household. In this case, it's now the church. It's a new family. And then devote yourself to doing church together. And one of those is breaking bread. So is this an accident? 
Are the apostles just winging it? Or are they following a pattern? And I would argue they're following a pattern. It's not accidental or incidental. And the question is, does it work? Does God bless this? Oh, absolutely. Awe comes upon every soul and God adds to them every day. The pattern is blessed by God. It's a covenantal pattern. And the meal is at the center of this covenant. The apostles believed that they were part of something bigger and that Jesus had given clear instructions on what the church is supposed to do and how this new covenant is to be enjoyed. That if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, then you then begin to organize yourself in such a way that you help one another. And it's not helpful to go outside the pattern, to follow the pattern, to hold the gospel out to the world, and to invite people to come to Jesus and be brought in. So I would ask, based on this pattern, what should be the pattern of Redeeming Grace Church? Like if we were just to start a church on our own, and we had to figure out what these patterns are, how we're going to do baptism, Lord's Supper, preaching, membership, how we're going to do all this stuff that the Bible teaches in the New Covenant, what should be the pattern that we copy? I would argue this is the pattern. This is not to offend anybody. This is just to go, I think this is what the Bible teaches. And I think God blesses when we obey his teaching. Let's go to Paul in 1 Corinthians. And let's talk a little bit about how in this really dysfunctional church of the Corinthians, they're fighting with each other, they're divided, there's sexual immorality. This place is a mess and nobody knows how to deal with it. And in three different passages... Paul makes reference to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, being part of the problem and solution to this. 1 Corinthians 5, for example. There is a man that they have received. He's believed the word. We assume he's been baptized and added to the church. He's an insider. He's taking the Lord's Supper with them. And, but he's also sleeping with his mother-in-law or his stepmom. Can't quite tell. He's an open, he's an open sexual immorality. He's violating the marriage covenant, and the church is actually celebrating it. They're like, we are so gracious, we let anyone come to the table that thinks they're a Christian. Just if they think they're a Christian, if they've been baptized, they can just come if they want. It doesn't matter how they're living. They don't have to be accountable to anyone. And Paul's like, this is not good. You have to deal with this. You need to remove this man from you. And then when he talks about how to do that, look at what he does in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Here's what he says. Look at what he appeals to when he talks about how to deal with sin in the church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's he appeal to? The Passover. Now, this is weird. Why is he going to... Well, let me finish. Let me read a couple more sentences and come back to this. It's really weird that he would bring up Passover. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. So he's assuming they're celebrating the Passover on some level. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is interesting because Corinth, that's not a Jewish city. And it's full of Jews and Gentiles. And we're in the New Covenant. They're not celebrating Passover. But he makes an appeal to Passover and says, remember how the Passover is about Jesus? So he pulls all of that pattern from the Old Testament. Remember how God was really strict about the keeping of Passover? Well, Christ has now fulfilled that, and now you and your church need to, need to hold to the pattern. You have let the Lord's Supper be a place of just unchecked people doing whatever they want. We are celebrating a festival here, and we have to get rid of some leaven that is ruining your gathering. And here's what he says. I wrote to you. 
in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. I'm not talking about eating culvers with your unsaved friend. He's talking about the meal that you have in the church or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They've been received by your church into the family. They're a fellow member. If he is guilty of sexual immorality and greed or is an idolater, reviled, drunkard, or swindard, not even to eat. Eat what? He's been talking about the festival that they celebrate in light of the Passover. You can't let someone come to the Lord's table who's living in unrepentant sin. You, you, you can't. You're not helping them. They're being affirmed in ways that they should not be affirmed because their profession is not consistent with the gospel. For what have I to do with judge, <clears throat> sorry, judging outsiders? Is it not the inside of the church that you're to judge? So at the table, you keep watch on each other, which means that you have so you have to have permission to know each other's sins enough, right? You have to know each other. You have to know and be known. How then are they to deal with the unrepentant sin of an, out, of an insider? They're to deal with that at the table, like Jesus did with Judas. This is a place of union and separation, affirmation and rejection, inclusion and exclusion. Paul uses Passover, Lord's Supper metaphors, resulting in a don't even eat with this man. I think in the context, it would have to mean the Lord's table, where you give affirmation and approval. You cannot give affirmation and approval to this man anymore. He's living in unrepentant sin. You must excommune him, excommunicate him, excommunion him. And you can't excommunicate someone you haven't incommunicated. If you haven't brought him in, you, don't, you can't. So be more careful about how you bring people to the table, and then when you actually remove them from the table, it actually means something. If it's just open-ended and has no no accountability to it, then it's really pretty meaningless, which we'll get to in 1 Corinthians 11, how they've made the Lord's Supper meaningless. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Hang in there. Two more passages. Hang in there. This same church, okay? So he's continuing to work on these issues in this church. He's already said, hey, one of the ways you deal with sexual immorality in the church is you have to deal with that at the eating, at the eating place, the table. 1 Corinthians 10, now he's going to deal with idolatry. Okay, another sin in the church. This, this church is a mess. How are they to deal with idolatry in the church? 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 22. He says, The cup, cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Koinonia, it's a community. Is it not a community in Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a community in the body of Christ? The idea there is of a community. And look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What makes us a church is the fact we take the Lord's Supper together. That is actually how a church comes together. We become one as we take the bread in Jesus' name. We become one body. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar, what do they imply then? The food offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything? No, I imply what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. But I want you to be participants. A coin, I don't want you to be a koinonia, a church with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? 
Okay, so he's saying that that's actually what makes you a church, is you're taking the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper doesn't just, it doesn't just reflect a covenant, it makes a covenant. Paul uses the same language back in 1 Corinthians 6, when he talks about a man who goes to a prostitute becomes one body with her. When we partake the Lord's Supper together, we become a church body together. There's more going on there than we realize when we partake the table together. So we ought to be careful. What makes a church? Partaking of the one loaf together constitutes a church. The church, the Lord's Supper is a membership act. It is making you members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12 is going to talk about membership in that way. So let me ask you this question. When did Redeeming Grace Church become a church? Sometimes we say January 5th because that was our first public service, but it actually happened December 22nd of 2019, where in this room, a group of believers intentionally said, let's make a covenant with one another to be a church, and let's take the Lord's Supper, actually making ourselves a covenant church. That's how a church is born. It's how a church is made is by taking the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is participating in a covenant. It's covenant keeping. So that, in this very room, happened. People signed on a covenant. We took the Lord's table together, and we became a church by taking the bread together, December 22nd, 2019. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Again, we're seeing in the Corinthian church... We saw in Acts, we saw in Acts that when you follow the biblical pattern, God seems to bless it, right? In 1 Corinthians, in, in the Corinthian church, we're seeing that they're not following this pattern at all, and they've got chaos. They've got chaos because they're not following the biblical pattern for the church, and Paul's trying to get it straightened out. He's appealed twice to the Lord's table in dealing with sexual immorality and in dealing with idolatry. Is they gotta think better about Lord's Supper, what it is and what it does that it affirms, that it, um, let me get my language right here, it's a place of union and separation, affirmation, rejection, inclusion, and exclusion. And then he finally gets to directly dealing with their practice of Lord's Supper. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. When you come together as a church, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I know you're calling it that, but the way you're approaching the table is making it a non-Lord's Supper. In fact, you're weaponizing the inclusive, exclusive nature of this supper, and you're using it wrongly. And look what he says. When you come together, it's not, is it not the Lord's Supper? That, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. You're just deciding for yourself. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise what? The church. It's a church ordinance. It's for the church. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What seems to be happening is the rich can get off work a little bit earlier, and they're gathering, and they're enjoying their time together. And then those who have to come a little bit later and maybe don't have as much to bring, it's already over. The meal's already over. And so what's happening is that the Lord's Supper, it always includes some and excludes others. It's just that they've now done it based on their own standards. 
It's now if you have money and you can show up early, you're included in the community. If you don't, then you don't get to be part of this community. The Lord's Supper does divide. It's just a matter of does it divide where the Bible tells it to divide. And what he's saying is that you're doing a very evil thing by taking the Lord's Supper and drawing the boundaries, drawing the fences around what you want. And you're nullifying the Lord's Supper. And you're lacking the power to deal with sin that the Lord's Supper really gives you, right? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23, 4, I received from the Lord what I also received to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever then eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let the person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Yikes. It's a weighty thing. This is a celebration, but it's also not insignificant. We're playing with something very powerful here. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I mean, if you won't remove people from the table, then I will. God has removed some of them through, through sickness and death, removed some of them from the church. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, a separation, right? So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Who's the each other? Your fellow members. You know who they are. You know their faces and their names, and you've been praying for them. And you want this unity and this affirmation to be brought in and experienced by everyone together. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Like, Don't make this about you, right? Let them eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So he's like, I'm going to come check in on this because <laughs> this is an important thing. So we see. If we just, do you see a pattern? Does that pattern make sense? What should the pattern of Redeeming Grace Church be? I would say that the Lord's Supper is a grateful remembering of God's saving work in the past that Jesus really did go to the cross. He really did spill his blood as the Lamb of God. He really did die and rise again. And that all who put their trust in him and want to step into this new covenant with all of the blessings that it affords, with all the things that he purchased for us, they can have it. And by doing so, in this covenant pattern, there's a nourishing anticipation as we really do take the Lord's Supper together. And it means something. Like I'm known and I know people. And we're walking together, and there's an affirmation that isn't just me, I feel like taking it or I don't feel like taking it, but there's a genuine, like, even when I'm doubting and struggling, I'm going to trust these people's affirmation of me. And they're going to hold and carry me through. So it's not just about me and whether I am worthy. It's about us taking it together and our body being built up and the boundaries of our body being very clear so that the gospel, we might hold a true gospel out to people that really can save, that really is bigger than you, 
that pulls you into a story that goes back to the beginning of time and stretches on into the future forever. That's the beauty of the Lord's Supper, this nourishing anticipation of God's completing work still to come as we all get seated around the table. We all get brought to his table as the new covenant comes together, not based on our merits, but based on him and our conformity, our trust, our love, our embracing of what he has done for us, our receiving of it. And it also it unites and affirms a particular set of God's people in a place and time. It's like the gospel for our taste buds, but it's also something we can see. We can see God assembling a people together and moving them forward inch by inch, Sunday by Sunday. A particular set of people. Not just the global church, but the global church being expressed through a local church with names and faces and stories that are known and affirmed and shared. Every organization has an inside and an outside. Every organization includes and excludes. If we don't take seriously the inclusion and exclusion of baptism and Lord's Supper, we misrepresent the gospel to ourselves and the world. And we include and exclude based on our own criteria, based on age or life stage or whether we like someone, music preferences, preaching preferences, income, race. You all know people that pick churches not based on how they take the Lord's Supper, but on whether or not the lighting is right. Come on, right? Right? Based on life stage. There just aren't people my age there. Oh, the most important thing. And we talked about the marriage covenant, but it is... It is temporary, and it ultimately leads us to the new covenant. Marriage covenant, we're really serious about that. We also ought to be careful about the new covenant. We are not being loving by allowing the church and its ordinances to just be self-defined. We get them of power, we disorient ourselves, and we end up in the Corinthian situation. I think at least in part. We, we set ourselves up for failure. So, there's an offense on the front end. Maybe some of you even feel that right now. A little bit of an offense on the front end, but great comfort on the other side when you come inside and the walls are strong and thick, the foundation is sure, and the pattern holds all the way through, and the ark is actually strong enough to get us through the floodwaters of judgment to salvation, right? Because the church is strong. It's been built well. And man, I'm a little offended that I have to go inside that ship to be saved. You know, I have to, I have to enter into the covenant that is bought by Christ. But it's safe, and it gets us there. So my friends, the Lord's Supper is a place of great joy. We look back on what God did in Christ for us to save us from our sins, an exodus that we've experienced if we've trusted in Him. We look inside and examine our own lives for any sin or hindrance to our faithfulness to Jesus. Anything standing between us and our fellow members, we deal with it. We look outward to brothers and sisters of the covenant in real time and space, like real. The, the covenant actually looks real, has names and faces. And we look outward. We affirm and confirm one another's faith as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we look forward to the day when we will feast together with Christ. This taking of the Lord's Supper is like the rehearsal dinner. We're just practicing for the real thing, Right? And those that are participants in the wedding are invited to participate in the rehearsal dinner. So the supper is joyous. It's also serious. It's not a place for shallow personal self-expression, but deep corporate proclamation that this church is in line with the gospel, headed towards the consummation of Jesus, and rejoicing in that it's coming very soon.
So since our inception, we have always affirmed this covenant as members, as an expression of what Jesus brought, bought for us with his blood. This covenant is a summary of the necessary fruit that comes with genuinely committing to Jesus and coming to his table. And so I would like to actually have our covenant members stand up. We do this every time. Covenant members, if you'd please stand up. And let's affirm our covenant like we did in this room a few years ago. Let's affirm it together like we do every family meeting. Some of you have not seen us do this because we've done this in secret. Now we're doing it publicly, and maybe that is a little off-putting. This is what we are. This is who we are. This is who we, the Scriptures have called us to be in this way. So let's affirm our covenant together as we have been, as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having been baptized as a believer and agreeing with the redeeming grace, church, structure, and doctrine, we now, depending upon the Holy Spirit, establish this covenant with one another. We understand this covenant to be a good summary of New Testament instruction about the normal Christian life. In all we do, we aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, to Him be all glory forever. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away all, injur- all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. We will. we will. With humility and gentleness, patience and love, we will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We will. we will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We will train our children in the instruction of the Lord, seeking to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ before our family, friends, and neighbors. Lost my spot. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism in the Lord's Supper, the loving exercise of church discipline, and the careful responsibilities of healthy church membership. And we will contribute cheerfully and generously to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. And we will, when we move from this place, unite as soon as possible with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. We will. And in all these things, we rely on our God who has made us a new, has made a new and everlasting covenant with us. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. In and because of Jesus, we make this covenant together. Amen. You can be seated. So, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been baptized by a church that preaches the same gospel that we preach, and you remain in good standing with a church that believes the gospel, then you're welcome to participate in this body-uniting, soul-nourishing experience with us. If not, then I would ask you to watch as the body of Christ does, according to the scriptural pattern, what Jesus called his body to do. If, it's, if you're not participating, just know that this is coming back around in two more weeks. We plan to do this about every other week. So you'll have another opportunity between now and then. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, that's the most important thing. That's what saves. That's what makes you right with God. So you put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
if you have a disagreement or dragging your feet about baptism or church membership, let's talk about that. And, and if you can show me biblically where I'm wrong when it comes to how we see this pattern, show me biblically we would love to repent of that and go a different direction. But if this is the biblical pattern, then it's on you to think about. And if you're an unrepentant sin, you call yourself a believer, you're an unrepentant sin, this is an opportunity to be challenged in that. Do you love your sin more than you love Christ? God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for giving us the word, for giving us a pattern, for giving us covenants, covenants like marriage with a design and an order to them. God, thank you for giving us the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and now this new covenant. And we thank you, God, that you have made it clear, the pattern and order of rightly celebrating that covenant that is based in your blood that you yourself initiated. And God, we thank you that you graciously open your hands to all who will receive it on your terms, to all who will receive you by faith and come into this covenant may have all of the benefits and blessings of that covenant. God, we do pray that our taking of the Lord's Supper together would hold us and strengthen us for the future. And we pray, I pray for my friends here who are wrestling through this now. They've just had this thrown in their lap and now they don't know what to do with it. God, I pray that your spirit would lead them and guide them, that maybe this would be a catalyst for some of them repenting of their sins and coming to Jesus. And maybe some of them would now see how these things are put together and go, I should be baptized and enter into the life of the church. I just didn't understand how significant it was and how much good and that Jesus died to give me these gifts. I want to take hold of them. And God, we pray that there would be more of us that are taking the Lord's Supper together in the future as we all try to follow your biblical pattern, as we all seek to be nourished and sustained by the work that you have done for us. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.